The Where Our Minds Wanda podcast may contain sensitive content. Listener discretion is advised. Greetings, fellow wanderers, to the places our minds wander. The house at the end of the dirt road where disembodied voices whisper and strange sounds make the living shiver. Where shadows lurk at the edge of the woods, just outside your back door. And mysterious lights speed beyond reason across the clear night sky. Odd events throughout time that lead you down the rabbit hole. I'm Wes. And I'm Beth. And this is Where Our Minds Wander. Hello and welcome to where our minds wander, all you fellow wanderers. Thank you for joining us. Welcome, everyone. Before we get into tonight's stories, we'd like to say that Beth and I have made the decision to pause putting out premium bonus subscription episodes until summer. We just don't have the time. So with that said, if you like the show and want to show your support, you can always donate on our website. We have PayPal, Buy Me a Coffee, or Ko-Fi. And you can donate as little or as much as you would like to. So that's it for the housekeeping tonight. Beth, would you like to tell all our listeners where your mind wandered for this episode? No. (laughs) Well, that's it then. That's the show. Good night, everybody. Night. (laughs) Of course I would. (laughs) So since we're in the dark gloomy winter months, and it's been gray and cloudy here for weeks, I was in the mood for something a little more upbeat and maybe even a little bit silly for my part of the episode. A little silly? (laughs) A little. (laughs) You've already been a little silly. I know. I wanted to get everybody in the mood for the silliness. It is true that there does seem to be a lot of people, including our neighbors, that are talking about how much the overcast, dark and gloomy sky is affecting their mood this winter. It does seem particularly bad this winter. So, we've covered unusual towns and places on our show before, so I thought this week I would talk about Casey, Illinois. At first glance, Casey is just a small town in Clark County, which is in the eastern part of the state. The current population is a little under 2,400 people, but at one time, the town was a center of commerce for oil magnates. Settlements sprang up around present-day Casey in 1834, and by 1853, with the establishment of a post office, the community of Casey became official. Then, the discovery of oil turned Casey into a boom town, And by 1907, 2,000 wells had been drilled in a 9,000-acre area between Casey and Westfield. 24 million barrels were produced just that year. In 1910, John D. Rockefeller purchased a Casey oil field for more than a million dollars, and the area became known as a place to deposit money and spend money which was easy enough to do in the numerous banks and saloons and at the Fairview Park racetrack. Casey also became the home of the Illinois Amateur Softball Association Hall of Fame. But softball and oil fields aren't what 
drew me to stories about KZ. KZ is a town that likes to go big. And by big, I mean that KZ holds 12 Guinness World Records for having the biggest of things. And it's all the brainchild of one man, plus a dedicated team of local builders and a community of big dreamers. The man who started it all, businessman Jim Bolin, got the idea to build something big back in 2009, when Casey was kind of languishing from a recession. Hoping to bring tourism to his town, Bolin looked at leftover pipes from his business ventures and got the idea to build something really big. The biggest set of wind chimes in the world. The chimes took two years to build, and once the 42-foot-long chimes were suspended on huge metal poles, they reached an incredible 49 feet high. They weigh a whopping 16,932.4 pounds. According to DownstateIll.com, the gigantic wind chimes include a rope so that visitors can make the chimes ring. They were recognized by the Guinness World Book of Records in 2012. But even before that, people were flocking to Casey to see them and ring them. And Bolin realized just how much revenue was now coming into Casey because of them. So he decided that if one gigantic item was drawing crowds, how about two? When the president of the Casey Country Club approached him, the two of them came up with a brilliant big idea. It took five months to laminate lumber together and then chainsaw cut and sand the wood into a massive golf tee. The gargantuan tee is 40 feet tall and weighs in at 6,659 pounds. That's a big tee. That's huge. <laughs> that would take a big ball. <laughs> and a huge golf club to hit it. That comes later. The golf club comes later, but there is not a giant golf ball. Sorry to let people down so early. But anyway, when the Guinness World Records recognized it as the world's largest golf tee in May of 2013, the town of Casey had its second world record. With their newest record, Bolin and the town of Casey were off and running, going full bore towards constructing as many massive items as they could think of. But they weren't arbitrary in their choices. Each object related to scripture in some way and to a local spot in town. They added at least three more on October 20th, 2015 alone. Lying across the yard in front of Richard's Farm Restaurant is a pretty impressive farm tool. 60 feet long and 1,940 pounds, the fork tips are each covered with guards to keep people from impaling themselves or being impaled. That's a concern when you have such a ginormous pitchfork. The pitchfork was special because there wasn't any existing world record. So as long as it was 10 times larger than a real-life pitchfork, it would fit the criteria. 
The mammoth fork handle is made out of reclaimed western red cedar, and the forks are reclaimed streetlight illuminator arms. It did earn world's largest status. If you need a place to put up your feet after taking in the sight of the wind chimes, golf tee, and giant pitchfork, you can head over to East Street and take a gander at a very large rocking chair. Large is an understatement, of course. The chair is 56 feet tall and took three cranes to assemble. I watched the little video of how they put it together, and it was incredible. These cranes just swinging all these pieces around and fitting them in. With a colossal weight of 46,200 pounds, which is three times the weight of the wind chimes, the rocking chair is built out of wood and metal pipes. A dove of peace is artfully carved into the headrest, and the armrests boast carvings of olive branches. But in order to achieve record status, the 56-foot-tall rocking chair had to actually rock in front of World Book representatives. It took 10 men to do it, but the chair did indeed rock. Literally and figuratively. Today, it is stabilized so it doesn't hurt anybody. The chair was also deemed the world's largest. The third object to make it into the record books that day is housed in a building that dates back to the 1800s and is now home of the Wildflower Bakery and Candy Company. What do you think it is? It's actually a pair of objects. I don't know. It could be almost anything, but I'll take a stab at it. Let's see. Um, Two donuts. No. Do you want to guess again? No. (laughs) Well, now who's being silly? You won't even play my game. You're never going to guess it anyway. Should I just tell you? Yeah, you should. It's a pair of jumbo wooden shoes. (laughs) What the hell does that have to do with a candy store? (laughs) Nothing. (laughs) So... You're teasing. Well, a little bit. So they're like wooden clogs. When I say wooden shoes, right? They're not like sneakers. They're they're clogs. Right. And I have to say that the pictures I looked at online really don't do them justice because it's hard to tell how big they are. They're so big that 15 adults can fit inside just one shoe at the same time. Each one is 11 feet, 5 inches long five feet, 10 inches wide, and four feet, 10 inches tall. Bolin and his two-person team used an actual clog as a reference, multiplying the size until they had an enormous block of wood made out of 61 layers of pine. It's a lot of wood. That it is. And you know, I hope they're not carved out because literally you could make a swimming pool out of them when it rains. I know. I mean, somebody could drown in one of those. (laughs) I don't think they'd fill them with water inside the candy store. Oh, they're inside the candy store? Yes. How the hell do you fit something that big inside a candy store? I don't know how they got them in. It's a good question. They're massive. So they took these 61 layers of pine 
and then they meticulously chainsaw-carved and sanded the shoes until they were a perfect replica of the smaller clocks. And each shoe tops out at 2,500 pounds. They're massive shoes. And it's become a thing for patrons of the bakery to throw coins into the shoes, and then the coins are collected and donated to the town's Big Things Small Town project. So with the shoes, that puts Casey at five world records for biggest things. And you'd think five would be enough, but not for Jim Bolin or the townsfolk. They kept planning and building, adding seven more. Our supersized journey continues with an exact replica of a standard U.S. mailbox. It's bright white with a red flag and a red latch, just like 90% of the mailboxes you pass by on the street every day. The lid lifts up and down, just like it should, and it's perched on top of a standard wooden mailbox post. The only catch is visitors to Main Street have to climb a staircase to get inside of it, since this immense repository has a volume of 5,743.41 cubic feet. It's so immense that it's actually big enough to house the future museum Bolin hopes to begin on postal history. If you're passing by number four West Alabama Street, you might notice a brightly painted red brick building that just happens to be a vintage auto shop. And then you might notice the 28-foot-tall object standing in front of it. Okay, you'd probably notice the 28-foot object first. It just happens to be a towering key to a Chevy Silverado truck. I didn't say Silverado very clearly, did I? That time I did. And by towering, I mean towering. It's almost twice the height of the building. Chevy even allowed Bolin to reproduce their logo on the key so that it's an exact replica. Now, unfortunately, I couldn't find any references to what it's made out of, but whatever they used, it has the exact surface texture and look of a truck key, from the kind of hard black rubber fob to the matte silver key part. The giant key was accepted into the Guinness Book of World Records in 2019. And that brings us to object number eight, the only one that seems to have contenders in other parts of the country, including Wisconsin and Oregon. Except if you read closely and look closely, there are some important distinctions. I'm talking about the world's largest barbershop pole. That's awesome. I love barbershop poles. And this one's really cool. It's also on Main Street. And the girthy pole is 3 feet 11 inches wide and 14 feet 7 inches tall. So the pole has girth to it. <laughs> it's very girthy. <laughs> I thought you would pick up on that. Took you a second. You just didn't want to interrupt me. Well, now you're not saying anything. <laughs> I'm just thinking about a barbershop pole with girth. Right. And 
as far as height, like 14 feet, that's that's short compared to all the other tall things that they've built in Casey. But what sets this one apart as a record holder is that it's an actual working pole. That's magnificent. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I'd love to see that. It's cool. It's it has the red and white and blue stripes and they turn inside a clear plastic shaft so it's a fully functional pole it spins around just like a real one so the barbershop poles in wisconsin and oregon are much much taller than this one but they are just regular wooden poles painted in the iconic striped colors so they don't move well you can't really call that a barbershop pole then. right but they, they do hold the records for the tallest. Right. This is the largest. Yes. Yes. Apparently, the townsfolk of Casey had been asking Jim Bolin when he was going to add a golf club to the giant golf tee for quite a while. You'd said earlier it needed a golf club. Yes. So eventually, he did. The Herculean-sized club which is made out of a recycled aluminum light pole and persimmon wood, is 45 feet long, and it rests against a boulder on South Central Avenue. So it's not next to the T, but it's still in town. Right. There are two more world record-holding objects in Casey, a teeter-totter that measures 82 feet long and an 11-foot, 8.5-inch long swizzle spoon. <laughs> <laughs> the teeter-totter sounds cool. It looks kind of like a bridge because they have to, for safety reasons, have like guardrails on the sides. Well, yeah, I mean, you could see people launching each other off that thing. Yeah, so it's not permanently stabilized because um, I think it's one Saturday a month. Or it might just be Saturdays during the summer months. I can't remember exactly. They do open it up so that tourists can go up and down on it. Nice. Yeah. But at one time, Casey also held the world's largest knitting needles and the world's largest crochet hook records. Now, both of these objects are still in town, but other people have since broken the Guinness World Records. And it isn't all about breaking records. There are 25 other very large things in Casey that don't have aspirations of world titles. They're just big for the absolute fun of it. There's a 450-pound bright pink piggy bank, for example, that smiles at anyone who passes by the butcher shop. It's a little ironic. <laughs> it's awesome, though. It sounds like a great place to live. And to bring kids. Yes. There's a 16-foot-long taco that weighs 3,500 pounds perched in front of Cilantro's Grill Restaurant. There's a perfect replica of a mouse trap that could catch a mouse the size of a horse or a human if they want to stop for a pretty cool photo. Across the road from behemoth-sized antlers is a pizza slicer big enough for the Jolly Green Giant. Casey, Illinois, took an idea and ran with it, infusing their town with the tourism they needed through imagination and whimsy. 
But before I sign off, you might be thinking, but I only counted 11 objects with world records and you said there were 12. And yes, there are technically 12, although the 12th object isn't actually in Casey. It's actually in Marshall, Illinois, a town that was equally hit by the recession brought on by the completion of Interstate 70. Wanting to help his neighboring community by extending tourism towards their downtown, Jim Bolin came up with the idea of the world's largest gavel. Lacquered a deep brown, the red oak gavel sits at an angle on top of a wooden striking block in front of the Marshall Courthouse. The striking end is five feet tall, and from tip to tip, the gavel is 16 feet 8 inches long. There are other huge gavel sculptures out there, but since the Marshall gavel is made from the same wood that real gavels are made from, it still holds the world record for largest gavel. So technically, it is the 12th object on the list in the Guinness Book of World Records. I love the idea that the people of Casey might continue adding on to their menagerie of super big items, and that they're more than willing to extend their big idea to other nearby towns. There's nothing small about Casey. They took a whimsical idea and added some downright artistic excellence and meaningfulness and turned their town into something special. And I just want to say, I did get most of this information from the excellent KZ Town website, bigthingssmalltown.com. And it's an excellent source for all things big and small. Hey, did you know? Many of us have heard of the man in the iron mask. But what about the real-life man with an iron hand? A medieval German knight and mercenary in 1503 lost his right arm in battle when he was 23 years old. Fitted with an incredible prosthetic, he became known as Guts of the Iron Hand. His iron hand was so sophisticated with its knuckle joints and spring-loaded parts that he could hold the reins of his horse, hold a cup of ale, play cards, and even write with a quill. He could also still fight with a sword. And he did until the age of 64. He died in his sleep in 1562 at the age of 82. Who'd have thunk it? Where did your mind wander recently? Well, my story tonight is about an object that we pretty much use every day, probably without even realizing how important it is to our daily routine. The evil queen steps in front of the massive gilded mirror hanging on the wall. She eerily tilts her head back and with steely eyes and a steely expression asks the one question she fears the answer to the most. Mirror, mirror on the wall, who is the fairest of them all. Now, you might be having a Mandela effect moment because you might remember the evil queen in Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs saying, Magic mirror, not mirror mirror, 
And you'd be right. Disney took a little license with the original fairy tale line and altered it slightly. But that's not the point. I want you to go back to the mirror and the evil queen who stands before it, staring into its perfectly smooth glass. Watch as her eyes widen in shock and anger as the wispy, greenish-blue mask-like face appears and tells her the truth. Snow White is the fairest of them all. For millions of children from 1937 to today, that scene is played out in hundreds of other films. From characters who repeat the line in animated films, like Lord Farquaad in Shrek, to countless other characters in films that have relatively nothing to do with Snow White, the line has become part of our culture. But what about the mirror? As the evil queen stands before it, it's clear that she's entered some sort of magical trance, and the face that appears in the glass is not her own. That face then predicts the future. It's all just fairy tale magic, right? Well, not when you look at the fact that the evil queen was actually scrying. Scrying is the practice of staring into or at a specific object intentionally until your body goes into some sort of natural relaxed trance. We might call it zoning out. And then as your mind wanders, you might see and hear all kinds of things, from visions of the future to the faces of deceased loved ones to divine inspiration. It depends solely on your intention as you gaze at the chosen object. But is it just our minds playing tricks on us? Or is there some validity to it? For thousands of years, cultures all over the world have certainly thought it was valid. Many still do. Recently, within the last 30 years or so, studies have been done and they have tried to prove just how valid it is. So tonight, I'm going to take a closer look at the practice of scrying and delve into what might be happening when people do it. According to fieldofstudy.com, the word scrying comes from the word descry, which is an old English word that means to make out dimly or reveal. There's some debate over who invented scrying or who wrote about it first. There's a Persian text from the 10th century that mentions gazing into a pool of liquid in order to ascertain the future. Ancient Babylonians poured oil into bowls of water and studied how the oil moved until they recognized shapes and faces. The ancient Egyptian goddess Hathor carried a shield that was said to reflect the truth if anyone gazed into it. And the ancient Egyptians stared into bowls of water or bowls of oil when they wanted to see what was going to happen in the future. Both ancient Celts and ancient Greeks used black glass, polished quartz, and water to gaze into in order to predict the future as well. In some Arab countries, scryers simply gazed at their own smoothly polished thumbnail. And ancient cultures in what is now known as present-day Mexico used highly polished obsidian glass to travel to other worlds. Fast forward to the 1800s, and the medical field, including physicians and psychologists, began using more modern devices like electric light bulbs. When their patients stared into the light, they saw things. In fact, in the world of scrying, there aren't any rules for what sort of objects you stare into. We automatically think of mirrors and crystal balls 
but it's not limited to that. As long as the object helps you enter a trance-like state, it can be almost anything. Bowls or pools of water have been used throughout history, as well as fire and smoke. Candle flames have been a popular choice as well, as well as tea leaves or coffee grounds. Some scryers may even stare into someone else's eyes, which is called soul-gazing. Or they might close their eyes and focus on the insides of their own eyelids, which is aptly called eyelid scrying. Hot wax, casually dripped onto water, can also be used. The shapes and images formed by the dried wax can represent things to whoever is looking at them. But once you choose an object and stare long enough for your body and mind to relax, what happens? Practitioners of divination will tell you that scrying can reveal all kinds of things, images from the subconscious, visions of gods or spirits, or even a visual representation of your own psychic mind. Some scryers have even claimed to hear their own voice in their head, affirming what they see, almost as if their subconscious mind and their physical body are creating a feedback loop. Now, depending on your intention, you can interpret those visions as prophecy, inspiration, or revelation. Throughout history, there have certainly been times and places where only the religious leaders or healers in a community would perform scrying rituals. But for the majority of the world, it was common enough and accessible enough for everyone to do it. Well, at least until it was banned by the church. It was certainly prevalent enough that references to it made it into all kinds of literature. If we look at just fairy tales, there's Snow White, of course, but also the Snow Queen and Beauty and the Beast. And it's still popular in modern-day literature and TV as well. Harry Potter fans know about scrying mirrors. So does anyone who watched the children's show The Romper Room in the 40 years or so between 1956 and 1994. I mean, the mirror the hostess held up didn't have any glass in it, but she would look through it at the end of every single episode and recite the rhyme, Romper, Bomper, Stomper, Boo. Tell me, tell me, tell me do. Magic Mirror, tell me today, did all of my friends have fun at play? And then she'd list a different string of names every single episode, claiming to see these children watching her on TV from their living rooms. I remember that because I used to watch the romper room and she'd say things like, and I see Jimmy and I see Sarah and I, and I would sit every day and just hope that she would say my name, but she never did. Well, there were shows out there that did that and it, it made you as a child feel like they were talking to you. And they could see you. Right. Yeah. Nobody ever said my name, though. Mine neither. <laughs> I guess we had unusual names. I guess so. There are so many references to scrying in mirrors and bodies of water in our TV shows and movies. I don't think that we even blink at it anymore. It's that common. The number of real people throughout history who have dabbled in scrying is huge. Political figures, writers, actors, doctors, there are countless references to a slew of people from all walks of life and all professions who have dabbled. But what about the few who were known for it? Well, 
One known scryer was Nostradamus. He actually used scrying as the means for making his prophecies. According to Erica Cheatham in her 1973 book, The Prophecies of Nostradamus, the famous predictor of future calamities would stare into a brass bowl filled with water which was set on a tripod. He'd stare into this bowl of water until he perceived a flame illuminating inside the bowl. This flame would allow him to see visions of the future, which he wrote down. If you're a believer in Nostradamus' predictions, then you could see how this scrying method was incredibly accurate. The Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn, who we've talked about before, they trained their initiates on how to scry successfully. They divided their lessons into three categories. The first was scrying in the spirit vision, in which they attempted to receive personal insights by gazing into a mirror or at a chosen symbol. The second was traveling in the spirit vision, where they attempted to travel during their scrying to other places or dimensions and interact with other beings. The third category was rising on the planes, where they attempted to elevate their consciousness to a divine level through scrying. Then there was Edward Kelly, the mystical occult partner of John Dee. John Dee is more well-known than Kelly, since Dee was Queen Elizabeth I's trusted advisor, as well as an alchemist, astronomer, and mathematician in the mid to late 1500s. Dee was known as the last royal magician, and in his later years, his partner, Edward Kelly, used a black obsidian mirror to speak with the angels. According to fieldofstudy.com, Kelly would gaze into the black mirror and Dee would write down what Kelly told him he was seeing and hearing. The piece of obsidian they used was allegedly brought back from Mexico by conquistador Hernán Cortés. It was rumored to have belonged to the Aztecs. But in more modern times, no one seems to be as closely associated with scrying than Dr. Raymond Moody, since he was the inventor of the psychomantium. A psychomantium is a small enclosed area that houses just two things, a comfortable chair and a mirror. Either painted black or dimly lit, the room is supposed to cut off all outside stimulation. The mirror is tilted so that all it reflects is the dark room. When a person enters a psychomantium, they may bring a lit candle with them, although it isn't necessary. As the person sits comfortably in the chair, gazing into the angled mirror, they can communicate with the dead. The psychomantium is relatively new. It was popularized by Moody in the 1970s. But it has become immensely popular with ghost hunters and people who wish to hone their mediumship skills. But it's Moody's research with everyday people and the effects of the psychomantium that are really intriguing. Dr. Moody, who holds degrees in philosophy and psychiatry, is also a physician and author. He actually coined the phrase near-death experience, and much of his life's work has been studying people who have had near-death experiences, or NDEs. He began using a psychomantium that he had built in Alabama as a way to help people move through their grief. He called his psychomantium John D's Theater of the Mind. That's cool how it's connected. It is awesome. Dr. Moody's psychomantium 
was covered in black velvet curtains to block out sunlight from the windows. He positioned a chair in the room and hung a mirror on the wall across from it. Then he placed a single light bulb directly behind the chair. According to the PSI Encyclopedia website, Moody first tried out his form of scrying himself. He was hoping to contact his maternal grandmother, and so he spent hours looking at photographs of her and running happy memories through his mind. Then he entered the psychomantium and stared into the mirror. After an hour, she had not manifested. But someone else did. His paternal grandmother, who he claimed he didn't have the best relationship with when she was living. In his vision, she appeared younger and healthier than she was at the time of her death. And when she spoke to him, her voice was very crisp, almost electrical sounding. The encounter left him feeling as though he gained closure and a better understanding of his grandmother. All in all, he felt it had been an experience of great healing. And so he thought, why couldn't the psychomantium work for other people who wish to fix a relationship with a dead loved one? He chose 10 test subjects, all mature adults, and was careful to pick people who he felt were professional and not easily swayed by occult beliefs. They were skeptics, I guess you'd say. He had each of the 10 people talk about their dead loved ones who they wished to communicate with. He had them focus on what their relationship was like. Then he had each subject enter the psychomantium one person at a time. 50% of the test subjects came out of the session saying that they believed they had seen and spoken with deceased family members. By 1993, Dr. Moody had repeated his experiment with almost 300 participants, and the results were pretty amazing. Most of the subjects said that they saw mist or white smoke reflected in the mirror, and then either bright lights or geometric shapes. Then their deceased loved ones would appear. In the case where a ghost or spirit revealed themselves, all of them looked younger and healthier than they had at the time of their deaths. Of those 300 people, 10% claimed that they didn't see a reflection of a person. It was as if the deceased person actually stepped out or leaned out of the mirror. A quarter of the subject said that the person who did appear was not the relative that they were hoping to speak to, but still a relative. Almost 50% of the subjects said that they held conversations with the deceased either audibly or telepathically. And almost all the subjects said that they perceived their encounters as 100% real. They were not daydreaming. That's really interesting that the, percent, the percentages are so high. They're very high. In addition, a few subjects claimed that they felt as if they had actually left this plane of existence and entered into another world through the mirror. For 25% of the subjects, they didn't feel as though they had contacted the dead during the experiment, but they did report encountering one within 24 hours afterwards. So the research is pretty interesting. It really is. Like I said, I can't believe how high some of the percentages are. The scientific community is split between those who are open to all kinds of experiments with consciousness to those who strongly believe that all the psychomantium does is create delusions. So 
Some say it's nothing more than wishful thinking. Of course. <laughs> Paranormal skeptic and psychologist Leonard Zusny believes that psychomantium experiences are one of two things, either hallucinations or hypnagogic. Hypnagogia is the transitional state between waking and sleep and sleeping and wakefulness. Some hypnagogic experiences include sleep paralysis and lucid dreaming. Another possible explanation is that perhaps it doesn't have anything to do with our consciousness, but rather with our brain's inability to process information the same way in the dark as it does in the light. The Perception Journal published a paper in 2010 in which the author theorized that staring into a mirror at your own reflection in low light causes our eyes to pick up on low-level fluctuations in the stability of edges. Our eyes see these fluctuations in the shading of our own faces and the definition of our own face to the point that our brain's facial recognition systems goes all wonky, and we think we are actually seeing someone else. That's really cool. So you're staring in, because you're staring in such low light, and we start to perceive like the fluctuations, Right. then it morphs into, it's our own reflection, but our brain doesn't recognize it as ourselves anymore. Right. That's freaky. You know, and we've seen these on several shows. And you know what? We need to try this out. I was just going to say that. I was going to wait till you were done, but I was going to say that's one thing that I would love to try. We it? have the perfect closet for that. Yeah. And I think I might set that up later on tonight. Oh, great. <laughs> oh, boy. <laughs> right. So whether you believe that scrying experiences are valid or not, I think it says something that each and every one of us has the ability to zone out. We've all done it. We've all had someone else snap their fingers or wave their hand or say our name five or six times to get us to snap back into the present. Wow, we just did that with Johnny the other night, our neighbor. <laughs> oh, poor Johnny. Let's not pick on him. <laughs> but we did. <laughs> yes, we did. And we've all stared into a bonfire or a fireplace and been mesmerized. And when you think about it, these days, people's smartphone screens reflect just like Obsidian. So in that sense, we're scrying without even realizing it. That just blew my mind. <laughs> well, when you think about it. Yeah. When your phone's kind of like the screen's off and you're just looking at it, turning it on, or when it just goes, when it times out. Yeah. Yeah. So maybe... It's more of a natural human thing than being a supernatural thing. Maybe. Or maybe when practiced enough, it's actually a window into deeper dimensions and a way to commune with the dead. We won't know unless we try it. And we're going to try it. <laughs> tonight, apparently. <laughs> we're building it tonight. <laughs> but either way, it's certainly permeated our culture in a thousand ways some of which we don't even realize. Yeah, when you were saying that earlier, I was trying to think, it really is thousands of movies and TV shows where there's some sort of reference yeah. to scrying in some way, or even staring out the car window. You know, right. they, they do the pan by as the character's staring out the window, yeah. and in their mind, they're going somewhere else. I mean, is daydreaming into your own past 
if you're staring at an object, is that scrying? I mean, I think it is. Well, I don't know, but either way, it's fascinating. It is. It makes you wonder even more about consciousness, I think. Well, I think about it all the time. <laughs> you know, as I'm staring at you in this dimly lit studio, we just have a single bulb hanging over your head out of a crow's mouth. It's not a real crow. It's a resin crow. But the bulb is hanging out of its mouth. And as it's been illuminating you for the last however long we've been in here, your face has been morphing into somebody else. Wow. Wishful thinking for you, huh? <laughs> Not at all. I was just trying to mess with you. Well, as always, if you would like to delve deeper into tonight's topics, uh, you can certainly do that by checking out our sources in our show notes. We have all the links there of where we got um, the basis of our information from. And it's a great jumping off point if you would like to know more. Yeah. And with that said, that about wraps it up for this episode. So... Thank you again for joining us and join us again next week for an all new episode of Where Our Minds Wander. See you soon.